Turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Paul's letter to the Galatians will start the fifth chapter. And see how far we get in our study of the book of Galatians. It's taken fits and spurts and that sort of thing due to various and sundry reasons. And it may again, we'll see what we do for the upcoming Advent season, whether we continue in Galatians or maybe consider an Advent series. But today we'll at least consider the opening six verses of Galatians 5, reading together the first 15. Galatians chapter 5, page 1157, 1157 in your pew Bible. Hear the word of God. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, and have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well, who hindered you from obeying the truth This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. That's for the reading of God's holy word. Again, our text is the verses 1 through 6. 1 through 6 of Galatians chapter 5. We trust that the Lord will add his blessing to this word. Brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, our Lord, the word that is before us this morning is one that at certainly a superficial level sounds very relevant to the culture, the context in which we are living. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Indeed, in a conversation with a sister of the faith uh, in this past week, or two weeks ago rather, uh, the note was made concerning this very passage that, that given all that's happened in the last two years, what a word this is, what a relevant word this is. For freedom, Christ has set you free and stand firm therefore, not submitting again to a yoke of slavery. And in reflecting on that, it, it struck me that that this sister was understanding Paul's words in a way that was more shaped by the context or the, the uh, current cultural context than the, the, the scriptural context 
of Paul's letter. She was understanding Paul to be speaking almost in a political way. That the freedom for which we have, or that we have enjoyed, or that we enjoy, is the freedom uh, politically from tyranny, from those that would seek to control our lives through some form of dictatorship. And I think that we recognize that that is a reality, has been a reality in so many times of the history of the world. That's been a reality uh, in the history uh, of many of us who can remember the days of the Second World War. It is a familiar thought, tyranny, as a robbing people of their freedom. And it is indeed worth fighting for, for freedom, for freedom not only for ourselves but for all men. That there is in this life a call to be free, to be free to worship God, to be free to gather with His people and celebrate His grace and goodness, undoubtedly. But Paul doesn't think in those terms. That's not what he means when he speaks of freedom here in the book of Galatians. It's not a political freedom that he has in mind. It is a much greater freedom, one that can never be taken from you even if you live under a tyrant, so that even those that may, for example, our brothers and sisters in China, live in a time or a place that is not entirely free, yet for them too, the freedom of Christ has been given, a freedom that we have received, not for anything that we've done, but only for what Jesus Christ has done upon us or for us. That's Paul's point in the book of Galatians. Indeed, the freedom of which he speaks here in chapter 5 is a freedom that, that echoes throughout this book. It begins in chapter 1 where he speaks of freedom, introduces the thought. It, it echoes in those passages of chapter 3 where slavery is discussed. And, and it is most recently described in chapter 4, the very end of that chapter where Paul says, So brothers, we are not children of the slave but of the free woman. And then he says, for freedom Christ has set us free and stand firm therefore and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. The freedom of which he speaks is the freedom of forgiveness. The freedom that we enjoy by virtue of Christ having died for us on the cross so that we are no longer under condemnation. So that we are a people that need never fear. That we are a people that never need to worry about whether God's angry with us or whether God's going to condemn us because we are a people who are free, free from slavery to sin, free from the power of sin and Satan, free in Jesus Christ. And in that freedom, says Paul, remain faithful, stand fast, stand firm. Do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Don't be like the Israelites so long ago who wanted to go back to Egypt and who wanted to leave the freedom that God had given for the slavery that they were familiar with. That always seems so strange, doesn't it? It always did to me. Maybe it does to you as well when you read that portion of the book of Exodus where we want to go back. We want to go back to those pots of leeks and the rest. And you think, what's wrong with you people? How could you possibly want to do that? And it is easy always to stand in judgment on historical figures and to say, well, they were fools and thankfully we're not. 
But the, the truth is, is we have a lot more affinity to those Israelites than we wish to admit. A, a, a greater affinity with these Galatian Christians who were doing the exact same thing. They were doing exactly what the Israelites were doing when they said, we want to go back to Egypt. The Galatians are saying the same thing when they were saying, we want to go back to slavery. Now, they, they wouldn't have put it in those terms to be sure. But that's exactly what they were doing. That's why Paul says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now, that's, that's the yoke of slavery that Paul's referring to in verse 1. For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. What's the yoke of slavery? Well, Paul says it's circumcision. That's one of the expressions of the yoke of slavery that Paul deals with here. And he demonstrates how that's a yoke of slavery in the verses that follow. Circumcision, which is a historically significant element of Israel's history, of the church's history. Circumcision was the sacrament, one of the two sacraments, we might say, of the Old Testament, circumcision and Passover. And you remember what circumcision said. It was given to Abram as an assurance that he and his children, his sons, and all of those who lived within his house, whether bought by him or born into his home, all of that many people, that all of those who belonged to him were heirs of the promise that God gave to Abraham. God had said to Abram, the nations of the world will be blessed through you and And Abram had doubted, you remember, Abram had questioned God. I don't have a son. How can it be? You've made a promise, but I don't see you fulfilling that promise. God says, don't worry. I'm going to do it. From your own body will come a son. And then here's a sign to assure you. Here's a way for you to be encouraged, to be be built up in your faith, to know that I am going to do exactly what I said I would do. I'm going to cut my promise into your very flesh. And so circumcision was a precious and powerful promise of God to his Old Testament people concerning his power to save. You might even think in terms of circumcision how it's the removal of flesh, how it's the removal of sin, but it is only a little bit of flesh. The Lord, if he were to remove the sin of his people in one move, would destroy them. Because all of us is sinful from top to bottom. If God were to remove all of our sin all at once, he would destroy us because we would be utterly condemned. But in circumcision, the Lord says, I'm going to take a little bit as a sign, just as a sign, that you're mine. And you can be assured that I'm going to save you. That's what circumcision was. Now, How could that be a, 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 a yoke of slavery? How could accepting circumcision then mean that Christ would be of no advantage to you? Well, here's where you need to remember that the Galatian Christians were being told they needed to be circumcised. They were Gentiles. You remember, they hadn't been circumcised on the eighth day as every, as every Jewish boy had been. No, they had come into the faith, into the Christian faith through the ministry of Paul. And now these Jewish false teachers had come behind Paul and said to these people, oh yes, yes, it's good that you believe in Jesus Christ. We're thankful for all of that. Of course we are. But there are some things you need to do. There are rules you've got to follow. And if you don't follow them, you can't be saved. One of those rules is you've got to be circumcised. You have to be circumcised in order to be saved. See, that's the key, isn't it? 
It's in order to be saved. And Paul says, wait, that's not what circumcision taught. And that is not what the gospel teaches. No, indeed, if you accept that message, then Christ is of no advantage to you. That's a frightening thought. That Christ is of no advantage to you? That you cannot be saved? That you are not saved? If you pursue this path, says Paul, you will not arrive at Mount Zion in glory. That's a terrifying thought, I think. How can Paul be so sure? Well, he goes on, doesn't he? I testify again to, to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. Now here Paul takes the logical argument of the Judaizers and he impresses it upon the hearts of his hearers, of his readers. He says, okay, you want to do something in order to inherit salvation? You want to accomplish a work and so think you can please God? Fine. Then you've got to do it all because God is a God of righteousness. God is a God of justice. God does not allow any sin in His presence. He condemns it. He is perfectly righteous, holy, and good. And any sin that comes into His presence is destroyed by His righteous judgment. So you want to obey the law as a way for you to achieve salvation? You think by doing something, you're impressing God? Fine. Then you have to do it perfectly and in every way and in every moment. You want to start climbing the ladder of self-righteousness to get into heaven? You've got to step on every rung because if you miss one, you are eternally condemned. Indeed, that's what happens when we take self-righteousness as the confirmation of our standing before Christ. As Paul says, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. You are no longer dependent upon the Lord. You are no longer looking to Him for salvation. You are now looking to yourself you are now trusting in your own good works you are now believing your own ability that's Paul's point in the verses 1 through 4 of our text the yoke of slavery is the yoke of self-righteousness which severs us from Christ because we cannot finish that path now let me suggest to you that this is exactly what makes it so hard for us here today to live the Christian life. Let me suggest to you that this is why we struggle with surrendering ourselves in our totality to God. This is what makes Christianity, the gospel we preach, so Utterly terrifying. Now you say, well, but I'm not terrified from it. Maybe gospel terrifying. The idea that I get to go to heaven because of something somebody else did, that's not terrifying. That's fabulous. Ah, but think of it. Because the gospel is one of those all your eggs in one basket kind of thing, an all or nothing proposition. 
We're not talking here about some minor matter. We're talking about eternity. We're talking about your eternal soul, your eternal life. You are putting your eternity in the hands of one man who lived 2,000 years ago, whom you've never met, and who you believe died on a cross for your sins. People get cold feet before their wedding day. Don't you think people should get a little nervous at the thought that our eternal condition is dependent upon the work of a man who lived long ago, at least according to what we say? God's Word says? I mean, if it's God's Word, is it God's Word even? Do you know that that's the truth? I mean, what if Islam is correct? What if everyone's correct? What if the best we can hope for is to live a decent life, treat people well, and just expire into nothingness? These are some of the many ways our enemies try to push us off of the foundation of faith, and it is very effective. Because when it comes to surrendering our entire existence to God... The prospect of giving our lives to Jesus is just too frightening, too demanding. To give control of our future is too scary. It's so much easier to just believe that if you do a good thing here and there, far more appealing is the notion that we can control our future by going to church on Sunday, by giving in the offering, by doing a few good works. Because then you can check your scorecard and see if you've earned enough points and sleep easy at night. Far easier is lifeless, cold, and routine spirituality, a going through the motions, a prove I'm a Christian by pointing to my good works spirituality than what Paul teaches here. That's why for so many of us our worship of God is routine, is lifeless. Why this week will not distinguish us as Christians, our co-workers oblivious to the fact that we belong to Christ, our neighbors unaware that we love and serve the Lord. Our piety is pathetic because it's terrifying to give yourself to Jesus without a safety net, without any kind of backup plan B, without a little bit of extra, but isn't it about me too? When we start down the path of self-reliance and of self-control, We do it because it makes us feel better about our standing. We don't have, let's all calm down here. We don't have to go crazy. Let's not get too serious about this piety stuff. Pray publicly? I don't think so. Talk about Jesus? That's not what I'm going to do. Express my fears and my struggles, my faith in Jesus with my children and my grandchildren? That's not what I'm going to do. That's not what we do. That's not our culture. Why? Because we've done enough. I've done enough to be saved. I don't need to do more. That's our piety. And that's pathetic. And 
terrifying in the end because it places us in a position of slavery, fear, and pain. After all, not only are we not able to do enough to keep the demands of God's righteousness by our own strength, being born sinners after all, but the demand would never cease. You think you've done enough to get saved? Well, the law is like a drill sergeant screaming in your face day after day demanding that you do more, never giving you a moment's peace. And the truth is, at the end of your day, you would look back at a well-lived day and discover so many flaws, errors, and failures that you'll begin to wonder, am I saved? And the devil will begin to worm into your brain and into your spirit and say, see, you're not so good after all. Isn't that so often our experience? We look back on our life, on the early days of our career, at the work we did in those moments, the confidence, pride, and ability we, we thought we had. And we look back and go, what was I thinking? Or the early days of our marriage, And we scratch our heads for our foolishness. Or we look back on our teen years. We open up our high school yearbook and look at what our friends wrote in it and think, why was I such a fool? Because the truth is, not a one of us can live up to the standard demanded by us of God. If you think that you've done enough to get saved, You have got no idea who God is. Even when we don't think we're making mistakes, we're making mistakes. And is that the kind of piety you want to hang on to? Do you want to lay on your deathbed, about to meet the thrice holy God, convinced that you probably did more good than bad? And that He's going to be happy with your work? No, don't you see? It's an all or nothing proposition It is an exclusive freedom to which we have been called. And that's a terrifying prospect. No wonder Israel wanted to go back to Egypt, to the comfortable and the known. No wonder the Galatians wanted to go to works righteousness, to the comfortable and the known. No wonder we don't want to be troubled. Don't ruffle my feathers. Don't don't cause any trouble in the waters. Keep the water still like our piety, our churches, our spiritual. Let's just keep it calm, people. Let's not give ourselves more fully to Jesus Christ. But Paul says, no, that's exactly what you want to do. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore. Don't give in to the... Don't fall into this works righteousness thinking. But live in the freedom the freedom of which Paul speaks when he writes, for through the Spirit by faith we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Paul here begins in this book, in the big picture of the book, a transition to what will follow through the rest of chapter 5 and chapter 6. It's an emphasis on the Spirit's work in our lives. And there's much that, 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 that will be explained and expressed in what follows verses 5 and 6 about the Christian life. But notice here at least this, how the Christian life is described, the, the life of freedom that we have in Christ. You want to be a free Christian? 
This is how you have to be a free Christian. The yoke of slavery, the spirituality that is not free, but a burden, that lifestyle that we want by nature is one described by do's and don'ts, by check marks and trophies for good deeds. But how is the Christian, the free life, how is the freed Christian described? Well, says Paul, for through the Spirit, that first of all. The freed Christian is one who by the Spirit has been made alive, who by his presence and power in the work of the believer is regenerating, renewing, reforming, refashioning. It is not a work of our own. It is entirely a gift of God in Jesus Christ. And it is worked by faith. Not something we fully see fully or completely in this life, but something that we believe in. It is through the Spirit, by faith. Here now, not necessarily, not simply the idea that you believe in Jesus Christ, but also the idea that you anticipate something. Faith looks forward to something. Faith sees that in this life I don't achieve perfection. Faith knows that the work of the Spirit in this life will not be completed until the next life. We believe that the Lord will continue to begin or to finish the work that He has begun in us. That is the faith of which we speak. A faith which we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. That is that as Christians who have been enabled by the Holy Spirit, who have been enlivened by the Holy Spirit, we look forward not to being perfected in this life, though we strive for it and desire it, but we know that the perfection we desire and attain will not come until the next life. The righteousness for which we long for will not come until Jesus returns. But it is a righteousness, it is a way of living that is expressed only by faith working through love. That, in the end, is ultimately where Paul wants to end up. Paul says, listen, the Christian life is one that is made real, made alive by the Holy Spirit through faith, looking forward to the day when Christ will return and all of this brokenness will be freed and all of our failures will be forgotten, where all of our sins will be defeated and destroyed in the ultimate victory of Jesus Christ. And until then... We work out our faith through love. Through love. It's not self-righteousness, says Paul. It's self-sacrifice. It is service and a loving submission to the God of love. Now he's going to describe all of this more later. He's going to go on a great deal about what this looks like in the verses that follow. But what we want to note now in this context is that the Christian life and the Christian character finds this expression in those who are redeemed. And that means, first of all, that the Christian life is never and can never be an excuse to sin. Nor is it a passionless existence, a piety that is pathetic. The Christian life is filled with faith, hope, and love. Through the Spirit's power, we put our trust in the Lord. We look forward to blessing and we live a life of loving devotion and service. 
To be a Christian is to experience the transformative and powerful regenerative power of the Holy Spirit, turning us from being self-centered to being servant-oriented. So that freedom in Christ is not freedom to do what we want. It's freedom to live in the way of the Master. Freedom from self so that we are free to serve. It is not this cold and calculated spirituality that says, do this or else. Imagine a world like that. It would be terrifying. But it's a world in which the Father says, put your hand in mine. Let's walk together. And let me show you how to love. How to love me. And how to love each other. That's, that's what God does. That's what the Ten Commandments do. God says, I've bought you. I purchased you. You belong to me. I love you. Now, Love me in return. There shall be no other gods before me. No idols. Not my name in vain. Worship me. Here's how you love God. Oh, and your neighbor. Honor your parents. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Here's how you love each other. Have you ever thought of that? When your parents say to you that you have to be nice to somebody at school, They say, oh, be be kind to them. That what you're showing is that you're a loving person. That you love God and that you love each other. When you help maybe somebody with their homework, you're showing them love. Or when you rake the leaves of your neighbor's yard, your older elderly neighbor's yard, and you rake that, you may think, oh, why do I have to do that? When I was young, my mother would wake me up at six in the morning after it snowed and we had to shovel everybody's drive down the, down the street. You think, why do I have to do that? And what benefit do I get from it? None of the people woke up in time to realize I'd done it. I didn't even get the glory for it. That's slavery. That's thinking like a slave. But getting up and saying, I get to love my neighbor. I get to show them what it means to know the power of God in Jesus Christ. Even if they never know it's me, they know the power of love. That's the Christian life. We perceive the commands of the faith to be these cruel limitations that make life boring. But the truth is, they are the way to express and experience the freedom we have in Christ. Now, we will never achieve those things perfectly. Not in this life. And we're not okay with that. We're not okay with that. We don't revel in our sin and say, well, nobody's perfect, who cares? It grieves us when we falter and fail, when we're selfish and sinful. But we have a hope. A hope that rests in the coming of Jesus Christ. A hope of righteousness that will be ours in Him. And so we get up again and we pursue again this way of living. Today, in the way that we live out our confession, we rest secure in God's grace. And instead of trying to prove our worth, 
We spend our time blessing others, which is a much better way to live, a much better way to serve. Just look around at the world in which we live and ask yourself, is this selfishness, is the sinfulness, is the arrogance and pride of our world, is that proving beneficial to everybody? Is that making our culture, our society a better place? Or is living in the freedom won for us by Christ, freedom from judgment, freedom from condemnation, a freedom to serve, Is that a way, not only to bless others, but to praise our God? But you see, that's terrifying, isn't it? Because now you've got to get up on a Monday morning, and you've got to ask yourself, how can I serve God? How can I serve others? Going to work then no longer becomes about yourself, but about others. Freedom then becomes not getting credit and glory, but giving blessing and grace. Freedom then becomes living in confidence, but not our own confidence in the confidence of God's goodness towards us. But it is a real freedom. Freedom from having to prove our worth. Freedom from having to do enough. Freedom from worrying about our mistakes. And freedom from what will happen to us once God finds out, finds out how bad we've been. It's freedom from fear, and it's freedom for love. That's the problem with fear. Our hands are so busy protecting ourselves, proving how good we are, defending ourselves against any and every criticism that we don't have time to love anyone. It's only when by God's grace and through His Spirit we realize how secure we are in Him that we can let go of ourselves and embrace serving Him. It's not so hard to understand, it seems to me, why the, Egypt, why the Israelites rather wanted to go back to Egypt. Routine piety, spirituality that's just a going through the motions that appears, that has a, a superficial sense of confidence and comfort. But in the end, it's an empty, terrifying slavery. What Jesus has done for us is far greater. He's purchased freedom for us. A freedom from condemnation. A freedom from sin. A freedom to serve. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Let's thank the Lord for that by singing. We're going to sing 529. 529.